I don't know how you were raised, but um, my childhood left me kind of confused. I had an uncle, my, my mom's uh, little brother, who uh, caught and kept snakes in his home, Bonnie the boa and Popcorn the corn snake. He has little scars on his hands here because apparently Popcorn had pneumonia one time, and uh, he kept trying to reach in. He said, you know, if you handle them, then they, they'll stop biting you. And uh, he has scars on his hand from Popcorn. Popcorn never did stop biting him. But he used to say, oh, these are, these are great, you know. And we put out boards uh, he lived up in Chicago, and we put out boards, and every afternoon when he got off work from the post office, we'd go check those boards, see if we could catch some snakes. And uh, on the other hand, I grew up with Jake, who um, was kind of like Superman. He had very, very few uh, fears in the world, but he did not like snakes. We were not allowed to watch uh, Wild Kingdom when I was a kid, just in case they might have snakes on. And uh, we were over in Germany, you know, on Saturday afternoon, you know, Marlon Perkins and Wild Kingdom, and, and they were showing some kind of snake. And... And uh, it came on, and my dad was sitting there in the chair, you know, and I was sitting there watching. I was just waiting for him to say, turn it off, turn it off. Well, in Germany, we only had one station. There was only one English-speaking station back then. And so uh, my dad said, turn that off. And I said, well, you know, Dad, I just, you know, and so he starts watching. You know, I've never seen my dad watch snakes before, and he's kind of watching, you know. He just gets totally engrossed in it. And the whole time I'm watching him, he's kind of he's inching out on the edge of his chair. He's just kind of sitting out. He never saw me get up, and uh, he never saw me walk around behind him. And all I did was just put my hand on his shoulder. That's all I did. Now, Jake was not built for distance, but he was good for speed. And uh, I ran toward the back bedroom, and he came after me, and he caught me as I was going up on the bunk, you know. And I, I just looked at him. I'll never forget the look in his eyes. I was like, I'm your son. Don't hurt me. And uh, he didn't hurt me. He came to his senses. But in that environment, I learned at an early age, the only good snake is a dead snake. And I suppose it depends on whom you ask. There are between 2,500 and 3,000 varieties of snakes crawling around on the planet. Most of them are good snakes. They eat rodents, rats, mice. But for some reason, whenever I think of snakes, I think of copperheads and water moccasins, rattlers, and coral snakes. I've seen all four of those kinds of snakes since I've lived in Houston. Um, rattler I saw on a ranch out uh, near Somerville. But the other three I've seen on the bayou behind my house. And uh, I've seen coral snakes about five times now. And... Uh, and the book of Numbers is a very interesting story about bad snakes and a good snake that became a bad snake. Numbers chapter 21. I want to read verses 4 to 9 with you. Let's stand. We'll wake us up a little bit here today. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. You may be seated. Well, the Israelites' impatience got them in trouble, but I'm guessing this is the last time they ever complained about the food. Um, you know, through the years they had said, we want food, and God provided food, and we want water, and God brought water from a rock. And, but even God's patience has limits. And when the children of Israel rejected his provision of food and water for them, 
Um, it's interesting. These poisonous snakes are out there apparently in the wilderness. Apparently they came to a place where there was uh, a concentration of them. And uh, when a number of them died, the people repented and asked Moses to pray for them. And during the prayer time, God gave them a redemptive solution. He was to make a bronze snake for the people to look at and live. And the good snake overcame the bad ones. But I wonder, have you ever wondered, whatever happened to the bronze serpent? You know, did they pack it away in a museum somewhere? Was it buried there in the desert? Well, actually, in 2 Kings chapter 18, we get the rest of the story. Because um, when a good, godly young king named Hezekiah became the king, he started just uh, tearing down idols in Israel. And it turned out that they had kept this snake. Not only had they kept the snake, but they had honored the snake. They were burning incense to it. They had given it a name, Nehushtan. And uh, they bowed down to this snake. And at one time, this bronze snake, you would agree with me, had been a good snake. It had saved the life, or God had used it to save the lives of the people. But over a period of time, it became an idol. And the kings uh, generally did nothing to stop that. But thankfully, at age 25, young King Hezekiah ascended the throne And in the words of the NIV uh, translation, it says, He smashed the snake into pieces. I think to this day, some good snakes become bad snakes. We must always be careful not to worship uh, those good things that God gives us as though they were God Himself. Traditions can be like that snake. They serve purposes, but if we ever let them in the house and begin to worship them, then traditions lose their value and quickly move from truth into trouble. I think it's a danger for us as well that we would take God's good gifts and allow them to take the place of God Himself. We never bow down to traditions, but we do bow down to God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But His methods of reaching people are as diverse as the people themselves. So we must never confuse tradition with truth. Truth is timeless, but traditions uh, have a beginning and an end. The key to overcoming idolatry is to always give thanks for God's good gifts, but never give thanks to them. So we keep the good snakes. As I look at Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, the beginning of this is good. It was a good snake. It was, we would say, an old but good snake. This good old snake went back about 700 years by the time Hezekiah came on the scene. They'd kept it a long time. Everybody remembered that story. And when Israel had repented, they offered a solution to God and, and Moses, get rid of the snakes. And God doesn't actually get rid of the snakes, if you read the story carefully, but He does give them an alternative, uh, one that they can look up to and and be healed. So the the snake becomes a rescue and refuge and redemption. In the New Testament, you see Jesus picked this up in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, As Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. But if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to Myself. So Jesus even uses the snake as a symbol of his own uh, offer of salvation to the world. This symbol represents the real truth of God's love. Not that the snake ever saved anybody. Of course, God saved his people. But when they abandoned their pride and looked up in faith, they found healing. It's no wonder they didn't throw it away. And I think there are some good things in this world that we can't afford to throw away. I'm not an iconoclast. I wouldn't say... uh, you know, tear down everything, uh, lose every tradition. If it worked last year, don't do it this year. That's not my point. Um, but I love about Hezekiah that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And um, so he held on to a lot of good things, but he didn't hold on to the snake. Um, Dan Yeary is the pastor of North Phoenix Baptist Church. In fact, I think um, he prayed uh, at one of, the, uh, one of the political conventions 
Uh, he's a he's a friend of mine, and I think he was I think he was John McCain's pastor uh, out in Phoenix. Though I don't think McCain ever joined that church. And uh, he's a great storyteller. Some of you may remember him from South Maine years ago. And uh, he tells about um, a morning that his grandfather and his grandfather's best friend went fishing. And uh, you know how that goes. The fish weren't biting and the morning slipped by and they decided to uh, uh, take off their crankbaits and uh, switch to worms and fish on the lake bottom. Pretty soon, um, Dan's grandfather's buddy hooked a big catfish and was struggling to get the fish in the boat. Now, these men had gotten very comfortable, as Dan describes it, as they were fishing. Uh, they got out there. You know how it is. They're just kind of totally relaxed. Both of them were older men. They'd both taken their false teeth out and just put them there uh, in the boat. And uh, while um, this gra- this buddy is uh, struggling to get the fish in the boat, Dan's grandfather reached down and switched the two sets of, of teeth. I have no idea why he did that, but he did, just maybe for fun. And uh, turns out just he was about to put the catfish in the boat, the catfish got away. And, uh, you know, the guy's a little frustrated. He grabs... Uh, he grabs uh, some chewing tobacco, puts it in his jaw, and then reaches down and grabs what he thinks are his teeth, puts them in his mouth, and um, he gets aggravated beyond words at this point, pulls the teeth out, and just throws them into the lake. And then he turned to Dan's grandfather and said, those teeth never did fit right anyway. Well, they didn't fit right because they weren't his teeth. But um, Dan Yuri's uh, moral of the story was, don't throw away your valuables. Well, there's some things that are worth keeping, like, like truth. Um, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In these days, I'm teaching a theology class right now over at HBU, and one of the books we're reading, um, you know, the writer of the book comes to the conclusion, he says, you know, I'm not sure that everybody has to know Jesus in order to become a Christian. Maybe maybe you can just become a Christian um, by believing in God, and you don't know that it's Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, good things, I think, that are being thrown away right now by theologians uh, just to sort of be more inclusive. You know, everybody's going to get there anyway. Universalism, God is so good. He He won't condemn anybody. And it seems to me that uh, there's some things that we can't afford to throw away. Uh, we'll always believe in worship and in life-transforming Bible study and sacrifice and missions. These ought to be non-negotiables in the life of the of the body. On the other hand, I think we ought to kill the bad snakes. And how do how do we know the snake had become bad? Well, it says they burned incense to it. They, they named it. They went in and worshipped it. And uh, they loved that snake. In fact, they loved that snake more than God. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so Hezekiah comes in and he destroyed all the symbols of idolatry. Remember, they always had these uh, Asherah poles. They had different things that they, that they worshipped. And um, one thing God will not tolerate is the worship of the creation instead of the creator. This can happen in our lives. Something that God's given us, some good gift, becomes more important to us than God himself. And um, so Hezekiah just destroyed the snake. I've often wondered how that played in Jerusalem, you know. I bet there was a stir. The Jerusalem City Council probably had a referendum about it. Historical society had always preserved good old snakes. They got a petition up. Let's get rid of King Hezekiah. We had a snake when you came. We'll have a snake when you're gone. That can be today. Every leader has uh, faced that uh, in, a, in an organization from time to time. Like Hezekiah, when we find an old snake... We need to kill it. For instance, we could worship our traditions. <clears throat> you know, good snakes that have become bad. If I say Pharisee, I wonder how you react to that. Pharisees were, um, were bad in the New Testament. We know that. But did you know that in the time of Ezra, they were the ones who wanted to apply God's word to bring righteousness back to the nation. They applied the law to every situation in life, down to eating and washing hands. 
But when Jesus broke their laws, they wanted to crucify him. Good snake became a bad snake. Matthew 15, 6, Jesus took people to task for nullifying the word of God for the sake of their own tradition. Um, Paul warned the first century church in Colossians 2, 8, not to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depended on human tradition. So I think we need to regularly examine our traditions um, in the light of the person of, of Christ and the truth of his word. I'll never forget the first time I ran across uh, Nehushtan as a pastor. Um, I was uh, sacrificed on the altar of the flower fund in a business meeting. Um, we had uh, a unified budget, which was a big thing for our little church, Pleasant Grove. I was a teenage pastor, knew everything, you know. And, and what I didn't like was that we had all these new believers, and we were encouraging them to give to the church. And, uh, and, and they had this old tradition of the flower fund. It was actually like a little Folgers can. And uh, after everybody had already given their offering, then they would walk around and jingle this Folgers can and say, give to the flower fund. And then they used that money to buy flowers for people who were in the hospital or who had lost loved ones. I mean, it was a good thing to do, except um, we had new believers who came to me and said, hey, we've begun to give to the church and we're committed to that. And then they come around jingling this can in our Sunday school class. Can you do something about that? And so just on a whim, one night in a business meeting, I stood up and I said, you know, I've been thinking about the flower fund and we've got a unified budget I think we ought to just roll that into the unified budget. Then whatever you used to give to the flower fund, just give that if you want to. Or if you don't, I think the church will be able to absorb it. I wouldn't worry about it. And a dozen beautiful grandmothers who had fed me in their home, who had loved me like their own son, stood up and grew fangs and demolished me over a flower fund, which was, I learned that night, their sacred cow. It went sort of like this. Pastor, we had a flower fund when you came. And we're going to have a flower fund when you go. And that can be tonight if it needs to be. And it was that night that I realized as I drove back to Waco on the 38-mile journey back home on that Wednesday night that sacred cows may make the best burgers, but it's painful killing them. And uh, every, uh, every church has its flower fund. Uh, maybe in your church you've encountered that. You know, they're just things that, that we don't even know why we do them anymore, but we do them, and we're always going to do them. A great example is the U.S. Standard Railroad Gauge is four feet, eight, and one-half inches. Now, that's kind of an odd size. Wouldn't you say four feet, eight, and one-half inches? Why do we have that? Well, it's because English expatriates built the American railroads, and their distance in England, if you measure it, is four feet, eight, and one-half inches. They don't measure it that way, but if we measured it with one of our rulers, that's what it would say, four feet, eight, and a half. And, and if you ask them why they do that, if you go back in history, it's because that was the width of um, the standard wagon. But then the question is, why did they build the wagon four feet eight and one half inches across and the answer is because that's exactly the distance between the ruts in the old roads in England well who built those old roads in England well it turns back you can go back all the way to the time when the Romans were in England and uh, if you built a, um, a chariot that was wide enough for two war horses it had to be four feet eight and one half inches wide and so the Romans did it, so the British picked it up. So when they built their railroads, they did the exact same thing. They built them in those same areas, and uh, they've been in use ever since. Ralph Neighbor says, Tradition without purpose merely propagates more tradition without fostering growth or forward thinking. We could worship our possessions. In that same church I mentioned earlier, uh, they had opera chairs, and some of the ladies wanted to get pews. Um, and the men didn't want to get rid of the opera chairs because, in their words, we bought those back during the war and we sweat blood for those seats. In our church, we had more women than men. 
And the wives outvoted the husbands. The deacons had voted seven to zero not to exchange the opera chairs for pews, but um, the women outvoted them. And then we developed the pro-pew party and the anti-pew party right there in the church. And uh, and uh, in the past, women had sat on one side of the church and men on the other side, and they started doing that again. I had to preach about it and um, sort of bring us back together. You know, what if Tallywood had said when we were building, we can't remove our old chapel because that, I mean, a lot of people were married in that chapel. A lot of people were baptized in that chapel. Um, you know, what if uh, Tallowood said the only place you can worship is right here at 555 Tallowood? We would never have had this excellent facility. So in Jesus' day, the people took great pride in their temple in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Um, even Jesus' disciples were enamored of the massive stones and looked at the beautiful stonework that Herod had done to uh, revive Solomon's temple. In, in Luke 19, Jesus lamented the fact that they took more pride in their building than they did in knowing God. Look, symbols are good as long as they don't supplant what they symbolize. God has given Tallowood amazing buildings. In fact, um, someone asked me if I liked the new sanctuary, and I have to say I love preaching in that room. I love preaching in this room. And I want to preach here for a long, long time. But as I say that, I must re- remind that the buildings, they're really never an end in themselves. They're just a means to the end of worshiping God and reaching people. We could even worship um, our own way of doing things. When Jesus rose from the dead, some of the Christians worshipped on Sunday to celebrate uh, the resurrection. Others worshipped on Saturday because it was the Sabbath and it caused a, a real stir. In fact, in Romans fourteen five, Paul says, Each one should be persuaded about the right day in his own mind, but don't judge others. We offer both. We worship on Saturday night and Sunday morning. But some people say about Saturday, well, you're not really worshiping on the Sabbath. Well, listen, Saturday was the Sabbath before Sunday was. I mean, uh, the Sabbath was historically on Saturday. So worship is good, I think, on any, on any day of the week. It's in that little book. You've seen that book, Who Moved My Cheese? Um, we get comfortable with the way things are. And then we begin to idolatry, uh, make idols out of uh, the way things are, idolize the way things are, and then we don't want anybody to change them. I read back in the late 1800s, a man named Robert Rakes looked at the street urchins, the little children in London, and said, we need to teach them about God. So he started something called Sunday school. And uh, the many in that day said, we don't want those little low-class children in our churches. And they opposed this new thing called Sunday school. Uh, Larry Heslop has modeled for us flexibility and willingness to change. And I appreciate that, Larry. Uh, Time was here at Tallowood that men and women didn't go to Sunday school together. Anybody remember that time when men and, men and women didn't? And then uh, now you have the option. Interesting thing is we're still teaching the same Bible, just making new opportunities. The, the thing is truth never changes, but traditions don't have to dominate us. So what do you do about good old snakes that become bad? Some years ago, Melanie and I uh, went to a little church near Waco. Because after I messed with the flower fund at that one church, they sent, not really, no. But we moved to another little church uh, on the east side of Waco. And the people built a new parsonage for us. And it was just, it was, you know, we'd been living in an apartment. Uh, The garage of the parsonage was bigger than the apartment we'd been living in. I don't want you to think it was a mansion. It was like 1,500 square feet. But for us, as newlyweds, that was just huge. You know, brick house. I mean, it was amazing. And it was um, perhaps our first and only experience with living out in the country. And... Um, this house was surrounded by fields, and when the farmers mowed the fields, the field mice moved into the house. Apparently, it came in through the little weep holes. I'm not exactly sure how they got in, but they got in. Uh, I remember one night I was l- looking at one, and it started crawling up a curtain, and that was it. I was like, 
sick of it, and uh, we devised all kinds of cruel and unusual ways to get rid of the mice. And uh, at first, I caught them in a garbage can and threw them out in the backyard. And then the deacons at the church laughed at me and said, "He got back in the house before you did." So, and he got three friends and brought him with him. So, don't do that anymore. You're going to have to use mouse traps and other means. And um, that was all going on. And one day, I reached into the cupboard and I heard kind of a buzzing sound. You know, it sort of startles you. And uh, we had this sort of uh, contact paper in there, you know, and then the canned goods on top. And I looked down, and I saw just the segment of a snake. Something reptilian was crawling inside our cupboard. Now, uh, this startled me, as you can imagine. So I did what any one of us would do as the man of the house, uh, you know, to protect his family. I called my friends who were farmers, and I said, come over here. We got a snake in the cupboard. And so they came over, and I put on my cowboy boots. I'm not exactly sure why. I guess I thought I was going to stomp this snake to death or something if it came out. But um, we emptied the cupboard, you know, goosed each other a couple times. It was a little nerve-wracking. But we, we finally emptied the cupboard, and there's no snake. But there is a hole. And um, so the snake is, is still in the house, presumably. So I took uh, some steel wool or something and filled up the hole, and I thought, you know, that'll take care of the snake. Melanie went to bed. I was working on my dissertation at the time, so I was studying late at night. And uh, I walk in the kitchen to get a glass of water, and there is a five-foot-long bull snake just stretched out across the kitchen floor. And, I mean, I'm thinking, oh, boy, you know, what do I do now? You know, the farmers are all asleep. And uh, so I just, you know, instinctively, I started grabbing those canned goods that were still out on the... And I just started nuking the snake, you know, <clears throat> Snakes can back up. Did you know that? This one, its tail was still kind of in the hole underneath the dishwasher, so it just backed up under the dishwasher. And, you know, no more snake, but... And I'm thinking, if I tell Melanie this, she's going to move home with her parents. They just live like 40 miles away. And uh, this was not a good thing. And so the next day, I call my Uncle Lloyd. And I say, Lloyd, we got this snake living in our house. I mean, what, what do I do? And he goes, well, you've got to you got to protect the snake. I'm like, well, that wasn't very high on my agenda right now. He said, let, let, he said, look, do you have mice in your house? Said, oh, yeah, we got lots of mice. He said, oh, it just followed its food supply, you know. It's just, it was just hungry, and it saw a snake go, and it saw a mouse go through a weep hole, so it followed him in. And I said, well, good, because I've put out, you know, rat poison for the mice. Oh, no. My uncle's very dramatic. Oh, no. You've got to pick up that rat poison right now. Because if a mouse eats the rat poison and the snake eats the mouse... The snake will die. And at this point, it, you, you know, pardon me, but that didn't seem, seem like a really bad thing, you know. And uh, so um, we never actually saw the, the snake again. But um, I have this notion that there's some preacher some night who's going to walk into the uh, uh, kitchen and, uh, you know, and uh, see uh, a snake stretched out on the floor. But I would just say this. Good snakes become bad when they move into the house and take over. And... Uh, Hezekiah showed us the way. If a tradition ever gets in the way of truth, what do you do with it? You smash it to bits. So if you've got a favorite old dead bad snake and you're willing to create division over it, for God's sake, kill it. For your church's sake, kill it. For the sake of society and the world, kill it. For your own sake, kill it. And let God do something fresh and new and vital in our lives today. And by the way, when God wanted to save the world, he didn't send a snake. When God wanted to save humankind from sin, ultimately, it wasn't a snake that was lifted up, but Jesus Christ. So if Christ is lifted up in our lives today, all people will be drawn to him. Thank you.